when you first walk into the room, the perspective is these are the constraints, right? And that's how do you flip these constraints as soon as you think about and you identify these constraints, how do you then transfer them from a boundary or a constraint into a lens and an opportunity and a platform, right? And it's that flipping. And that to me is the most interesting and exciting way. And I think it, again, it comes from, I think a place of being, you know, growing up and in a mindset of being resource challenged, you know, and whatever that resource may be, money, time, food, opportunity. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast where we explore the world of culinary creativity in America. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversation with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to understand their path to success and how their background influences their creative process. Today, we are joined by the talented and passionate chef Derek Wagner, owner and head chef of the renowned Nick's on Broadway in Providence, Rhode Island. From his childhood memories to his ongoing commitment to local sourcing and sustainability, we'll dive deep into Derek's journey in the culinary industry and his unique approach to food. We also learn about his butchery program and how he continues to innovate and stay inspired in the kitchen. He is a chef who embraced the philosophy of nose-to-tail cooking, transforming whole animals into delicious, inspired dishes that ignite the taste buds while reducing food waste. So grab your apron, sharpen your knives, and let's get cooking with Chef Derek Wagner as we also explore his advice for aspiring chefs and even get a sneak peek into his unique take on the classic dish, the fish risotto. Derek Wagner style, of course. Hi, Chef. How are you? Hi, Emmanuel. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast Flavors Unknown. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here talking with you. Yeah, it's great to, you know, for me to be in, in Providence, Rhode Island. In fact, it's my first visit. I've never been here before. And it was great for me to, you know, to experience your food on, you know, on Friday. And it was a delicious meal. So thank you. You're very welcome. It was wonderful to have you. Welcome to Providence. Thank you. Are you from originally from uh, Rhode Island? I am. I am. I was born just down the street in Providence at the hospital and, oh, really? <laughs> and grew up about 20 minutes away from here in a town called Smithfields and spent most of my young adult life there and then moved to Providence when I went to college. And then for one reason or another, every time I tried to leave, another door opened okay. or another bond kept me here and I decided to, to stay here. Let's not go too fast about, you know, your career and so on. But my first question for you is, what is the food and the smell that reminds you of, of your childhood? The two smells, I would think, are crepes or what we called flapjacks when I was a kid. Okay. And both my mother and father made those on Sunday mornings. We, I'm the youngest of five. So there's seven of us in our house. So I have distinct memories of flapjacks on Sunday morning, just eggs, batter, warm skillets, and also of uh, sauteing onions and, and garlic and that flavor profile of just the beginnings of a sauce, you know, and one of the f my favorite things that my mother made for us when we were, we were younger, and it was a staple in one of the regular rotations was, we would just call it you know, pasta and meat sauce, but it was like her version of a bolognese. And we had that quite frequently. And the smell of the meat browning and the onions browning 
just takes me immediately, immediately back. Okay. Do you have an Italian background, by the way? That's a funny story. I think that's a whole nother podcast there. <laughs> but yeah, I am. Yeah, my grandfather, my father's uh, father was born in Sicily. Yeah, for long st- make a long story short. Yes, mostly, you know, grew up with a very strong French and Irish influence from my from my mother's parents. You know, my mother was very Irish and and kind of those sensibilities and Irish Catholic and you know there were a lot of butter and cheese and bread and just sort of more the, I think the stylistic approach to meal times and dinner times at the dinner table custards creams like those those sort of things you know for small treats and sweets for desserts and biscuits and whatnot. But my grandfather was the big, I think, footprint on, on it. And, and it comes from very like French Canadian cooking background, you know, Sunday suppers, roasts, chickens, you know, he would, he, he would put on a feast on you know, nothing, nothing ornamental, but he was feeding a large, feast by feeding a large family. They had seven siblings on my mother's side. And on Sunday, everybody came over, my grandfather made, you know, and that didn't, you know, that stopped, you know, I would say somewhat early in my childhood before I got to my teens. But every Sunday up until that point, before my grandparents moved, it was, it was a huge imprint on my, on my culinary so you mentioned crepes, obviously, you know, speaks to my French DNA, but you mentioned flapjacks. So what's for me, what's the difference between crepe, flapjacks and pancakes? See, that's a, that's a great question because when I'm with my family, we still say flapjacks, you know, but, and as a kid, you know, I didn't even know what a crepe was, you know, I'd, I'd never heard that till later, later in life. And I like you say crepes and not crepes. Yeah. <laughs> you hear a lot from, you know, my friends here in the U.S. Well, my meme, my, my great grandmother, my father's grandmother, you know, she still, she had a, a pretty thick French accent. And, and I can still remember a tiny, but very strong willed woman that I would go and visit. And I think that came from, you know, we had French Canadian on both sides of the family. And I think it just, they just somehow creeped into, everybody into both sides cooking and and they were just called flapjacks that's what they called them so for us and i know that that that's sort of a you know that's a name that a lot of people use in different terms and they can mean different things for different people and for us you know they were just they were crips <laughs> they were crips and i i again i didn't know that until later in life when i'm like oh that's ju- that's just a flapjack or that's just a <laughs> oh it's the same thing and that's of course when i started making them in the restaurant as many of my things you know started from these inspirations these childhood inspirations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know i would call them crips so people would know what they what they were but to me they were flapjacks and my my father came would be here and he'd see them on the menu or i'd make them for him he'd be like oh these are great you know flapjacks so you are you're part of like this uh, group of uh, chefs that in fact have the inspiration to come into the culinary world coming from the exposure of the food within their family, correct? That's uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And uh, so, why, when, and what make you uh, choose, you know, that path and and focus your life on, you know, that type of? I think for me, it, it comes from a few different avenues, and I think it's the convergence of interest and I think a love of food, but and also these very pure and joyful and sustenant memories and those were just a part of my my childhood happy memories happy smells sitting around the table and when i when i really think back on it it was as much about the table and just the gathering right and the feeling as it was about the food and the food of course was first and foremost and it was the reason right but when I think back of it, because I often do try to think, why did, you know, how did I start? Where did I, where did I jump on this train and when make those, those decisions? And, and I think that, that there was a, there were memories and happiness and joy embedded. And I think later in life, as life gets harder, you know, where some adversities and difficulties happen, I think 
I found myself constantly turning back inward to try to, you know, as my, when my parents later got divorced and my grandparents moved away and the gatherings became less and less and life was stressful and being, a, you know, being a teenager and how awkward and, and sometimes painful that can be and, and challenging and watching, you know, people go through difficult times in your family, experiencing death and loss and all these adversities that happen for everybody on their life journey. And I think there was part of me, a dream, the dreamer inside of me and this, this reverence for the past and history. And that was always searching to kind of recapture, recreate these happy moments and these happier times. Kind of an anchor for you from mental balance and and comfort. Totally. And, and, and it was a big comfort and a big anchor for me that I, I found that I always drew, went back to. And then as I was, became a teenager, when my mom started working and, she, you know, I was starting to have to make snacks for myself sometimes or come mm-hmm. home and make things, you know, I was comfortable and, and they, she always encouraged me and never said, don't touch this, don't touch that. You can't be, don't touch the knife, don't touch the stove. You know, it was part of like, you, you we were allowed to, cook and heat things up and, you know, go in the kitchen and, you know, grab a knife into this. It's just, you know, we were exposed to those things early in life. And I think it started with, you know, feeling comfortable doing those things completely just personally out of necessity or out of interest and never intended for it to be a career path. But, you know, I would do that. And then fast forward, I was probably 14. I was, you know, at home, my sister was home with one of her friends, my old, one of my older sisters, and she got a phone call, my sister's friend from her brother, who was a chef at a, at a restaurant a few towns away. And they, they were, must have been talking about how the dishwasher called out or didn't show up or something. And, you know, so she's explaining it to my sister and I'm there and they're here, like, the conversation, and they're, and yeah. they're like, well, maybe I'll, let me ask my brother and see if he wants to do it, you know? And I was just at that age, you know, where I, I didn't have a job yet. I wanted to work. We didn't have any, you know, we didn't have a lot of money or a lot of means. So we were, you know, industrious people. And, and it was very known at an early time that, you know, you, you had to be useful and you had to, you had to work. You had to gain money if, you know, to do what you needed to do. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll try it, you know? And that was it. They brought me there, dropped me off at the restaurant and, that was it. That was my first passage onto what I like to call the pirate ship of being in a kitchen, especially at that, at that age and that, that, that time. And I, I started work, working there on the weekends, washing dishes. And that's when I got bit by the bug, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. And I did that for, you know, a while until I went to summer camp. The same thing happened. I was there as a camper at the early part of the summer. And about three quarters of the way through the week, the camp director approached me and said, Hey, Derek, what are you, what are you doing for the rest of the summer? Do you have any big plans? And I said, well, I don't, I mean, no, I, I don't have any big plans. Said, well, how, what would you think about coming to work here for us? We really could, would love to have you on staff and we could use a hand. We're a little short staffed and. I said, okay, let me call my parents. And next thing you know, I was there for the, the entire summer working in the kitchen at a Boy Scout camp. And those, those two things, you know, again, and, and at that time, there were no plans to do this <laughs> long term professionally. At that time, it was very much math, science, sports, art, music, you know, those things were all part of my like, but, but professionally it was, you know, there was going to be an engineering or some kind of science and related field. At least that's what I thought eventually at the, towards the end of high school. And I just made a path. I just made a decision. And I originally, it was like a backup plan. You know, I, I, applied to West Point. I was going that was going to go to West Point and I was thinking about going to another school to play to play sports and and I also like love always loved cooking and I'm like, well, let me just also apply to Johnston Wales that, and I ended up going to Johnston Wales and that was, you know, that was just something I just made a, you know, made a decision. My brother at the time had 
had multiple deployments into the Middle East, sort of was what it was doing to my mother. My father was at the end of his tenure and about to retire uh, from the military also. And, you know, there was just, there was a lot going on in the world. It was an angsty teenager. And I think it was just like, you know, I wanted to follow more of a passion and artistic pursuits. Mm -hmm. I had this, you know, after being in class, I'm just kind of like, I need to be using my hands. I need to be up. I don't want to be strapped to a desk all day. And at least, you know, that was just the, in my head. And I just decided so to, Johnson Wales, there you go, Johnson Wales, here I come. And that was it. What did you learn there in Johnson Wales? Because it's interesting because, you know, with all the chefs, so I've, I've spoken with maybe talk to more than 100 of chefs and you have kind of like two different you know clusters you have like the group of yes you know culinary school fantastic it gives you like the discipline you know and so on and some others said nah, you don't have to go it's a lot of money spent and you know you can stage and whatever so so you have been to johnson and wells you're part of the alumni so just wanted to have your your thoughts on it and and you know what you learned there yeah and i i think it's interesting you really distilled that. Obviously, you've spoken to a lot of people, and I think that's very true. I think it is polarizing, you know, and, and for both of those reasons that you mentioned. And for me, like most things, I think it's somewhere in the, in the middle. You know, I think life is what you make of it, and it, but it's often what you, not just what you make of it, but how you react to what it makes of you or what it puts in front of you, really. And I think that's more, more the case. And are there many things, maybe more recently, you know, when I more recently was there, were there things that I wish were different or went a different way or happened a little different or different opportunities or different, did I learn more or, you know, my ideas of how the curriculum could have been or the experience could have been? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've spent the last 20 plus years trying to be part of that solution, right? And because that's just how I, I don't know, that's just the way that I think and how I try to tackle the world and, and the things that come in front of me is like, well, what can I do? Back to the visual that you mentioned prior to we started your recording, which is looking at the life with like with a glass half full. So looking at like the positive impact that you can make. Right? Absolutely. You know, and there were things that I, I, I know, yes, could I have had more technical training in certain aspects? Absolutely. Could I have had more experiential learning in, in certain areas? A absolutely. Do I think that I had some wonderful experiences? Absolutely. And nothing is ever going to be, you know, in my humble opinion, nothing is going to 100% live up to your idea of what it's supposed to be or should should be. But for me... I know and I'm thankful that had I not gone there, then my life would have looked very different and it would be in a different place. Maybe some for better, some for worse, but it would just be different. And I know some of the opportunities, some of the things that I saw, some of the beautiful relationships that I, that I've had and still have to this day came from those, those steps and those experiences. So I'm thankful for that. And that's the way I choose to look at it, but also not blindly and not with blinders on it and, and know that there were things, you know, and, and ways that it could have been better or served m me as a student or the industry as a whole in a, in a slightly different way and, and light. And those are things that I've tried to help be, be part of, whether it's coming in doing guest lectures, coming doing, you know, hosting interns or, or, or students or visitors or sitting on panels, you know, discussion panels of, as a business owner, as a chef, as a creator, wearing all the different hats that I have. So, and so now as a chef, when you have to hire someone, is is it is the line like attending a culinary school important in in the resume of someone that you are looking to bring in? Or it is it's a balance with the experience. I think among other things, it is certainly looked upon positively for the reason that somebody, it shows initiative, it shows want, it shows dedication that they decided to do that thing. But it certainly isn't the, 
yes or no, right? It's still, it's in context of other, other, other things, other characteristics, other variables. Ideally, I look and hope that the candidates that come in would have both, you know, education and experience because it shows the mental fortitude to know that I need to work. I need to train my hands as well as my mind. I need experience, right? It just shows you a different decision-making and a different experiential background when, when somebody has both. But that being said, you know, there's, there are students that I've hired that didn't have experience based on the conversations that we had and based mm-hmm, on their, mm-hmm. their stage trial. And then there are people with no culinary, you know, no culinary school education, you know, from an institutional standpoint, sure, sure, sure. Uh, but, but with experiential education that I've hired that have done really well, you know, and I think it, it's all part, it goes into the, you know, the decision ma- making matrix, but really it's the feeling and the conversation sure, that and I the have mindset when I, of the person when I sit yeah. down with somebody to see where they're at. And even now I think doing it for so long, you realize that, you know, it's not always, it's not a, it's not an always thing. It's just, where are you at right now? Where is this person at right now? And is this a good fit for them? Are we a good fit for them? And are they a good fit for us Mm -hmm. right now? Who has been your most influential, influential mentors and what have you learned from them? It's hard for me to say just one person, unless we hone down like to specific, you know, industry, you know, or chef mentor, there's chef mentor, there's life mentor. You know, I know that when I look at the table, you know, when I think about hospitality, right. And when I think about what I try to create every day and what our goals are, I have to think about the passion and the inspiration and the authenticity of setting a table. And when I say setting a table, that's just sort of my easy, you know, way of saying, you know, what we do here beyond just the craft of making things Mm -hmm, taste mm -hmm. good, right? It's the actual entire experience of hosting somebody, serving them, creating the food, of course, but, but the whole, the whole experience. And when I think about setting the table, I think about uh, my mother, my my grandfather, and how they, you know, through adversity, through life's challenges, through a lack of means and resources, always made it Im- important, a priority, delicious, sustenant, and feel good. And so they're at the top of the list for me in terms of overarching, you know. When I think about cooking as a a necessity and a need and doing something that you have to do, but trying to do it well and loving doing it. I think about, you know, one of my old scout masters who we had a large scout troop. He was such a big inspiration to me because I remember our campouts and he would, you know, he would do these open fire meals and he would, you know, large ham hocks and he would bury them in the ground and, and, you know, cast iron, Dutch iron, a lot of Dutch iron cooking and where he would, you know, we'd, we'd make fire pits and cook with coals and all these things that, you know, you kind of take for granted, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. as a child so and, of course, yeah. and then growing back, but looking back, especially for what I ended up doing for a living, you know, you're like, wow, that was really wonderful. He didn't have to do those things. And, for sure. yeah. but the, some of those flavors and some of those ideas and some of that, you know, cooking in open coals and open fires and over spits or, you know, starting to prepare and at, eight o'clock in the morning for the meal you were going to have at eight o'clock at night. And, you know, those sort of sensibilities and the style that he, that he did that with, he was, he was a huge inspiration to me in that, in that way. And I would end up helping again, you know, I would end up helping a lot mostly because I was just sort of part of the leadership structure as a, as where I was at my, in my troop, but also just because I, you know, I don't know, I just was drawn to it. And then when I started my culinary journey, you know, there was a, chef instructor who's since passed. His name was Kevin Duffy. He ended up being the dean. He was an Irish chef. He was really wonderful. And we had some great conversations. He was very real. He was tough, but fair and funny and affable and, and talented. And 
moving over into work, professional kitchens. There was a chef that I ended up working for, for four years. And his name was Casey Riley. And chef Casey had, was the chef de cuisine. He was a CIA graduate and the chef de cuisine at Les Bayes in Boston for a while. And then in the late nineties was hired to open a restaurant here in Providence. And it was going to be like Providence's like, you know, first time was when the Weston I ended up working there and I worked under him all through school. And that had a that had the most, I would say, in terms of professional impact stamp on my craft, on my thought, my sensibilities, my philosophy, see my honing of both my kitchen crafting skills, but also operational and impact. I think that that had an incredible inspirational impact and influence on me. So if you look at today, how would you describe your culinary style and, and your approach to cooking? That's a great question. I think the the older I've gotten and the more I see curious, curiosity has always been, you know, curiosity, necessity, you know, those things. Necessity really, in that in which way? You know, I you think necessity in the idea that, okay, I have to, there's whether it's situational necessity, whether it's uh, resource necessity of like, this is what we have, this is what's available, this is the need, this is the niche, this is the time of year, this mm-hmm. is the it. weather outside, you know, there's this idea that that is, you know, being influenced by your, you know, by your environment and everything that's going on in it. And that later would distill into like a, a very strong pathway towards trying to support and creates a sense of place. So it's almost like having a sandbox that is defined by a series of constraints and then that in fact start to inspire you. Exactly. Like it, it, it may be exactly. It starts as the first, you know, when you first walk into the room, the perspective is these are the constraints, right? And that's how do you flip these constraints as soon as you think about and you identify these constraints, how do you then transfer them from a boundary or a constraint into a lens and an opportunity and a platform, right? And it's that flipping. And that to me is the most interesting and exciting way. And I think it, again, it comes from, I think a place of being, you know, growing up and in a mindset of being resource challenged, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and whatever that resource may be, money, time, food, opportunity, and wanting to make the most out of what you had and finding a way into the next mm-hmm. the next step and the next pathway. And that's influenced my creative process tremendously. And it's just part of my DNA now. And how do I take these these things and that some might label, and I even myself might have labeled them as constraints or boundaries and turn them into positives and turn mm-hmm. them into something that is going to be special and wonderful. So there's that for sure, uh, that in terms of that necessity idea, but also paying attention to what's going on and being curious about it. And I think the more I've watched trends and, and things happen, I, I, I always, I think of it more as I'm a minimalist and a refiner and I'm more, I, you know, in the beginning, I think it started as like a painting, you know, where you just keep adding things. Sure. And, and the more I've gone along, I think of it more as sculpting and like, this is, you know, it's like a piece of stone or a clay or whatever, or wood. And, you know, and I want to take things away to leave something hopefully beautiful or meaningful and wonderful. And I think the more ornamental and overly, you know, whether it's in the written or in the palette or in the, in space, the more overly ornamental and busy things get and got and overly technical things have gotten. I think I've in my own way, not, not outwardly or taken away from people and their styles. Cause that's, I try to be very cognizant of that. You know, I, it's, this is just my experience and my style or my take on things, you know, and it, and I don't so towards simplification. Yeah. So. And it goes down to simplifying and I don't, you know, I would never challenge and say if somebody has a very busy style or a very 
ornamental style. You know, that's them and that's beautiful and that's with, wonderful. Uh, do they come with experience and age? That's what maybe, uh, you know, when you start, I'm thinking about, you know, those young chefs that start that want to put their names, you know, out there. They're probably, you know, maybe showing off is maybe not the right term, but they are putting like a lot on the canvas. Yes. Yes. In and order I think for them. And then later on, you know, then this is more about simplification, simplifying, focusing on the produce. Purity. And, you know, yeah. Purity, nuance, you know, and I think, yes, I think. And and it's funny now, like saying it because you like when you say it out loud, you 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 know you come to terms with yeah, you know I am yes, I'm getting older, and and it's just part of everybody's adventure. I, and maybe you know, and everybody will see it differently, and everybody will have their own unique part of the journey. But for me, that's very much what it has been like. It starts as you know because you're excited and you just want to try new things and taste new things and smash new things together to see what happens and and i think that's also exciting too and there's an energy in that right and but the more i've gotten you know the more i've experienced and the more i've done and the more i've cooked and curated and and written menus and created dishes and experienced eating out and experienced other people's cooking and you know the more i just go back to wanting things to be pure and simple and still complex you know and still nuanced and and still multifaceted but minimalist and pure and and not overly muddy and messy and and that can mean a lot of things i think in every dish and and there might be some dishes that we create that are a little busier. And I think it's more, you know, that's one chapter in a book, you know, versus like the entire book itself. Is there a dish or a series of dishes that you have done that you are the most proud of based on everything that you are describing? That's hard. Yeah, that is really hard. And you know, that's a hard question. Uh, I know it is. I'm just asking it. Yeah. You are describing I think it. I get excited I, yeah, in the process, and I get excited when I see and taste just beautiful raw elements, ingredients, and that could be produce, that could be fish, that could be meat, it could be really anything, but I get inspired by raw ingredients and the stories behind these raw ingredients and the relationships behind these raw ingredients, I think it all goes back to me for like, it starts with substance, right? And I'm, there's a constant search for meaning and substance, right? Because to me, what has kept me going and continues to inspire me and what I reach for, whether it's physically or emotionally, you know, is sustenance and things that feel good and move me and there's depth, you know, and, and there's a search for depth and substance and meaning. And so that comes from, you know, and it doesn't have to be fancy. It could be something really simple, but there's a, there's a, when something is just really delicious and then it also has meaning, you know, it just it res resonates differently. Right. And for me, goes back to the raw element, the raw ingredient the purity, the quality, right? And if there's something that is pure and quality driven and just wonderful, then there was probably somebody behind it, you know, a farmer, a fisherman, right? A crafts, a craftsman, right? So there's like, it's like the constantly trying to go back, you know, you're following the trail of crumbs, sure. right? So to see, to you, it seems that the importance of the ecosystems, you know, then the fact that I'm guessing like, like working closely with, you know, those purveyors, like, I mean, the farmers, the fishermen and so on, and celebrating their product is part of your approach to food. Exactly. Because, you know, when you, you know, again, it's this sense of curiosity, right? That starts with, why is this so good? Why do I love this? Or wow, I need, or depending on where you're coming from in the creative process, you're like, I need something this good. 
how do I find it? Right. And you go to that, you try to find that source or something shows up and you're like, why is this so different from every other piece of fish or every other vegetable that every other carrot that I've ever had or every other, whatever it is, you know, or why is this beef so flavorful, you know? And so it's like the curiosity in you, you're like, I need to know, right. I need to know. So now you go down that rabbit sure. hole yep. and one breadcrumb leads to the next into the next and then you figure it out well somebody cares as much about the thing that they do that it's it's so important to them that they make this beautiful thing right and then you kind of as you do that enough times especially as a chef and as a creator and somebody now you're trying to do this for everything and it's exhausting and it's time consuming and it's hard and but do then you, you do but you do then that you, on your own or you do that with in the collaboration with others. I think both you know okay. both yeah a lot of it takes a lot of work but it's certainly a team effort okay. but in terms of sauce sourcing and procuring and developing you know, those those relationships and bridges it does take a lot of work personally to you know to to get that get that ball rolling if you will but as you do that and our, as I've done that then you get to the place where you realize how important these connections are, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And and sources, and you want to be able to create them first, but then sustain and maintain them. And you understand that this is important for me. This has to be important. It has to be good for them too, right? So you again, you know, I'll constantly refer back to this as relationship. Right, relationship cuisine, relationship cooking, relationship hospitality. I don't want to be good at the expense of anyone else. I don't want our food to be amazing on the backs of either treating the staff or the producers, the farmers, or the customers and get I don't even call them customers, I call them guests. You know, the guests by taking advantage of any one thing. Because to me, it goes back to that ecosystem right and that's not just applicable to nature in you know in the sense in the traditional sense of trees and farming and ecology that's applicable to everything our ecosystem of you know of our restaurant here of our community at large of our industry community you know zoomed out in a in a more macro way you know nationally internationally it's just a hospitality field in general right you can you can apply it you can zoom in or zoom out however you like but it starts down here on the micro level you know and and the fact that the ecosystem has to be healthy for us to if we want to live off of it, right? If we want to, if we want it to inspire us, if we want it to be healthy and if we want it to be beautiful and bountiful, then we have to participate in its wellness and in its health and in, in its ability to, to sustain, maintain, create for us, right? And that requires work and that requires an understanding that we can't just take, but we have to put back and give. And, and if we try to give more, then we're participating in creating this environment. And now to kind of peel that way back and to come back to the original question, that's important all across the board. One of the things being where we are in the world, like on the coast here in, in New England, right? There's been a constant sense as I've traveled the world and traveled the country and participated in, in many different events. And I, I've just... The thing that when I always come back here that is special to me and that I try to do, and the thing that I love about going other places in the world, the country, is experiencing a sense of place, right? Where not, and this is better than you or this is better than that. It's just, this is, you're in a new, a new place. This is where we are, right? And one of the things, not to put any vegetable or protein in front of the other, because if any of my farmers or producers hear this, I don't want them to know. I'm just kidding. But no, seriously, one of the, the things I've grown so thankful for is being on the coast, right? As I traveled everywhere and, and to people, that are landlocked or don't have access to vibrant fishery communities. And I realized no matter what our challenges are here and things that we need to get better at and work on, like how lucky we are to have such 
incredible seafood, fish and, seafood and fish yeah. and access to it, right? There's plenty of people that are live close to water, but there's not active, vibrant fishing communities, fishing ports, producers. There's not, there's not wholesalers. There's not, there's not a docking system and, you know, purveyors and, and mongers and cutters. And, you know, there's no avenues or infrastructure to get that fish and seafood or access to it. Right. And, I am so blown away by, you know, the relationship that I have and the fish really that I have. And that comes from those relationships with the, with the fishermen, the shell fishery farmers, the oysters that are coming here that just came out of the water that day or the day before the fish that's like literally coming off the docks, like 40 minutes from here and had just come out of the water. And the, you know, the, they're taking pictures of the boat unloading and then texting it to me or so when I, I think I have a really high revenant reverence for, for this beautiful fresh fish. So when I think about favorite bites and favorite dishes, for me, it's hard to pick one thing. So that's why I often like to do progression meals. Or if somebody says, Oh, can you, you choose what I'm going to eat? I would rather instead of one big plate, I would rather give you three bites because mm-hmm. it's hard. To just that's and what, I and I that's don't what you did and with and me it on is, Friday. right exactly yeah, and yeah, let's you, you know I want you to experience experience yeah. at least a couple of layers you know of of bites and and have your taste buds and your palate and be able to not just and 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 there are wonderful and we do also sustenance like you know there's also something wonderful about just a bowl of something that you can you know that you can I wrap your a fish elbows around on friday i didn't know scoop correct? scup yeah scup scup, scup. scup. Yeah. sorry also known scup. as porgy um, okay i, I didn't yeah. know that fish at all it's, it's very good yeah scup. it's uh, very indigenous to this area yeah. and so it's one of the species that is is abundant and it's sustainable and it's one of the fish that is not as you know, is not known as well. So it's a, it's a very, it's a fun fish for us to do. It's affordable. It's sustainable. It's not overfished. It's a very heavily abundant. And it's one of those, you know, it's like an, what I like to call an underdog. You know, it's like, I'm always rooting for the underdogs and trying to put something that maybe doesn't get a lot of, I don't want to say respect, but doesn't get a lot of highlight or reverence paid to it so we try to do something wonderful with those and just like that soup that you you know that we serve that little tiny puree yeah. turnips you know turnips and, and pumpkin and sweet potato and turnips are one of those vegetables that are often overlooked but they're so flavorful and so beautiful can you talk to us a little bit the how you went into this but- butchery and 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 this program here Ab- absolutely and i think it you know it all builds e- each piece is connected to the you know to the last piece and the next piece and the charcuterie program started out of excitement and wonder and also out of necessity and in, as did the butcher as, as, as did the butchering <laughs> program you know I, I like to refer to myself as the accidental butcher you know it was not something that i it was a, there were skills that i wanted to learn but it it happened in a time and place when access and infrastructure to to gain access to meats from local farms, the only way that we could get them directly from the farm would be frozen because of the, the the health code laws and the distribution laws, which are in place for good reason. Or the workaround, you know, as we were working, myself and a group of farmers and chefs years ago were meeting with the health department and and other people in the food system to try to figure out how we could change things or make things work better so that farmers could get more of their products directly to chefs. And it proved very difficult because of the pieces that were involved. And through conversation and conversation, we realized that, okay, so the only way that I can get fresh meat from the farm is if it's whole, right? Because then it goes to the abattoir and and then it goes right from the abattoir to me. So now the chain of custody is protected. It's going from one licensed user and producer to another licensed user and producer. So the health department is happy because it's it's safe that way in their eyes. So it started off as, okay, well, we'll do this while we, you know, we'll fumble through this thinking, you know, naively that, it, okay, it'll take a couple months and we'll figure out how to get the, you know, create the pathways that need to happen. 
15 years later. <laughs> so it, what started as like, okay, like I just need to get this meat into my thing. Okay, send me the whole pig and I'll figure it out. And through, you know, started off through like, let me look it up in books. Let me ask friends, make phone calls. Let me look in magazines. Let me look on the internet. Let me, and then eventually, okay, this is going to be going on for a little bit. Let me attend some workshops. Let me do this. Let me meet. I met a wonderful uh, friend, Adam Danforth, butcher with Chef's Collaborative. And I attended one of his workshops and we were, became friends and we worked together uh, on Chef's Collaborative and ended up doing, you know, butchering demos together and years later and it sort of just started very organically as most things in my life do. It's kind of, <laughs> it sort of starts out of this idea and then reality of, you know, resources and, and time and necessity again, like, you know, the constraints Here we go again. where, where you're like, okay, I'm going to have this whole animal. And obviously when you get a whole pig in, you're like, well, there's the business side, which we don't often talk about, but the necessity sure. comes back also on that side of being, being resourceful and then trying to be mindful about waste and not waste things, which is a big part of my DNA and, and both as a business and as a person. And we're like, okay, well, we have all these beautiful bits and pieces and the ears and the trotters and then, and the nose and the head. And I can't grill these things. Obviously we're going to need to braise and we're going to need to create dishes that are not just using them, but are delicious and inspire people to want to eat them. You know, like, cause that's what's, that's also very important to me. It's not, it, you know, I'm not cooking for a party of one. I'm not just cooking for myself. The goal is to make people happy and excited. We also try to build bridges and create avenues and dishes that resonate with the people that we know are in our audience, right? Or that we want to draw here. And that charcuterie program, you know, it started off like, how am I going to get people to try this? I need to, you know, the most important thing is when they read it or when they're told about it verbally, that it, even if it inspires a little intrigue, it sounds delicious, right? Because if it sounds too, you know, if it's overly technically verbose, if it's, oh, if it's complicated in a way where if I can't understand it, there's a very small percentage of diners that if they're confounded by the, you know, the, the verbal sure. presentation, they will still move forward. Mm -hmm. Most diners be like, I don't, that I don't sounds weird sure. or I don't know what that is. Right. So I work really hard to dress that down. Right. So that people will want to try Can something. Can we take that example with? What I tasted on Friday, which is like the pork crostini. Yes. That is, which is an head, execution yeah, a, a, of your charcuterie program. Absolutely. I, when I read it, I was, you know, I was wondering what it was. Yeah. Is it yet? Is it sliced? Yeah. Is it, and it is the intentionally really, ambiguous. Really it, it, <laughs> it is intentionally a bit ambiguous, mm -hmm. not deceptive, but in a way where we're dressing down, you know, the staff is fully able to, talk about what it is, how it's made, and we're happy to share that information. But we want there to be a little wonder, but also people to be, you know, we tr I try to use words that will be approachable for every person that's there. So that was a head cheese or a head terrine, a por you know, terrine de tete. It's like, you know, there it was made with trotters and the cheeks and the jowls and the snouts and some uh, also some shoulder meat. So for, um, for my French DNA... It resonates yeah, from with me, but I'm guessing yeah, it is. I'm resonating like crostini. It's probably you know more appealing. Yes, like the average, I would say. Exactly, diner, and so. exactly, and that's the same with our pates and our mousses and things like that. We tend to try to dress down the verbiage so that you know those that are that are really excited and want to know oh, is that what what organs are in there or what pieces and cuts are in there. We will certainly tell them, but I'm not like kind of throwing it out there and, and like rubbing it in everybody's face that look what I did, you know, ooh, look at me, look what I could do. And like, we use the brains in this, or we use the, you know, like, or we use the, the, the tongue and the, and the kidneys, because to me, like, yeah, but if I you know that can, it, maybe people would not, say they would not try it, or they might say, they might say, oh yeah, I, maybe not. But you know, and it is, you know, it's meat and it's seasoned well and it's cooked well. And yeah. we use some very technical, you know, craft driven techniques to, to, to execute it. But at the end of the day, I don't want to put that on the diner. I want the diner 
to be comfortable because if they're relaxed, they're much more open. Their senses are open, right? They're, they're ready to enjoy, to absorb, to, to feel good, right? I, I have to say that, you know, I obviously read about you, you know, before coming and having, you know, a dinner on, on Friday. So I knew about the charcuterie program and I was intrigued about it. But when I look at your menu, yes, you know, this is, as you said, not something that you are bringing forward and it's very approachable. Your menu, the way it's described, mm-hmm. it's very approachable by anyone. And if you don't know anything about your charcuterie program, you're not going to, in fact, discover it. Yes. So I think that was pretty, pretty unique. Yeah. You know, thank you. And, and in fairness, also, there is usually a full charcuterie plate on the menu. Okay. Where, like, similar to, so like maybe our, I missed it. <laughs> sim- similar to our cheese plate. Yeah. Where we would have a few extra components, some riettes and other, other, other pates. But one of the realities of these last couple of years is that, you know, for so many reasons, uh, resource driven, whether it's the size of the team, the size of uh, the cost of ingredients, logistics, you know, trying to, trying to navigate the financial necessities of, you know, having to do more covers and, and with less people, you know, and the reality that that entails and not wanting the quality to suffer is that certain things will come on and pop off and go back on the menu based on the time I have to create it. And obviously the dishes or the components on a, the charcuterie plate are are require a lot of my time to to develop i just want to go back to one of the dish that i tasted that was really good the one with the fish that went the risotto and i always ask you know people that come to uh, the show to share kind of a, a recipe guideline you know for something that they could that a foodie can do at home and but with a you know a twist from you know from the chef so Let's think about like a risotto with a direct spin on it. Yes. Would it be? You know, risotto is one of those things that is so often on my menu for a lot of reasons, but because I love it, you know, there should be some richness to it, but also vibrancy, you know, and not, it shouldn't be so heavy and fatty and rich and people often put cream in it and, or too much cheese in it and, or, have this idea that they, you know, they're going to treat it like a pasta. There was this big fad about serving everything al dente and al dente went from what, what, you know, and again, this is just my humble opinion, but like from what I, you know, when I think of al dente, I think just not overcooked, you know, having some texture, but somehow over the last, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, and it's come down now, but, it, but, but there was a while where people were just serving things like undercooked, like, you know, like crunchy pasta. Yeah. Yeah. And then somehow it got out into the world that risotto should also be served al dente. And you go out and you have it and you're like, these are, this is uncooked rice. This is yeah. not digestible and it's not pleasant. And why would you do this to somebody? <laughs> you yeah, know, like, true. so we, you know, like I, I try to cook it well, you know, I, I prefer it not mushy, but I prefer it soft and still retaining its shape and a little bit of a bite, but being fully cooked. And that, so that, you know, kind of laying that foundation, you know, in context of, you know, to make it right, make it well, it, it is a labor of love. You have to be constantly at the stove with it. And if you are cooking it from raw, the rice from raw, it's, it's going to take 25 minutes to do it. So with our size and with our ability, and also th- it's hard to slow the development of the starch down when, when you do it just from raw, it can become very gluey, very fast. So a uh, technique that we've done that I've honed over the years is we will par cook the rice, right? So we'll cook it in a big rondo, a flat rondo that takes up, you know, half the stove or depending on which one we're doing so that there's a large surface area and we'll cook it very slow or very quickly watching it with, you know, stirring it, just adding enough stock to it just to cover it. Until we get it to so vegetable stock. Uh, you know, it depends on the dish and the iteration. The- Lately, we've been keeping it vegan, vegetarian okay. as a base. That way, sure. as we've had 
diners with so many restrictions coming in over the years, I try to keep some of the raw elements as vegan and, and restriction friendly so that even if they're in a dish that requires meat or seafood, we'll at least have some elements that are restriction friendly. That way we can create more. Doctor um, independent. Exactly. You know. Navigate that way. Yeah, so yeah. we usually will use a vegetable stock and then, or, or, or water and, and, We'll cook it until we get it about 80% of the way done and then immediately take it out and we'll have chilled pans and then out of the pan and spread it very thin on the pan so that it stops cooking and then right in the walk-in and it cools down almost instantly that way. And that's important because as you know, starch, rice can get gluey. If you, if you, if you cool it down too thick, if you don't cool it down fast enough, it will, it'll just overcook right in the pan. So then once it's chilled, completely chilled, then we'll consolidate it, bring it out into the station, keep it very cold. And now what I'll do is we'll, depending on what dish it's featured in, and like right now we're doing this beautiful butternut squash, right? Because we have lots of beautiful butternut squash. So we take the top halves of the butternut squash and we'll make beautiful dices and roast those in the oven. And then we take the bottom half, the bulbs, scoop the seeds out and make a puree out of that. So now when, you know, somebody will order risotto, saute onions, garlic, white wine, Okay, adds once we add deglaze with some white wine. Now we're sweating because I don't want any color. So just a little salt in the onions because I don't want it to be brown. I want it to be vibrant and bright orange. And then once it, once we, the wine is blown off the alcohol, we'll add a little stock and then we'll add some butternut squash puree, which is just bright orange because it would just water squash a little bit of salt. Put that in there. Let it come up to a simmer. Throw a couple of tablespoons of butter, just a drop of lemon juice, and then a nice spoonful of the rice that is about 80% of the way there. And now we'll let it come back up. And it's like finishing, you know, pasta and it's pasta water. You know, like you have this now that the remaining cooking that time that the risotto has to do, it releases a little starch in the stock. You know, if it was one portion, you know, say a cup of risotto, it might be that much stock as well. And then as needed, you know, instead of putting too much in there and then trying to reduce it down, you know, you're just adding a little bit, you're giving it what it needs. As I would like to say, as I teach the cooks, you're not adding too much and then having to reduce it and then ending up with pasty overcooked risotto. You just... Okay, so now we're just letting it simmer, stirring it constantly. And then right before we, we would say right before the pickup or right before we go to the go plates up and put it on the dish, that's when we will finish it with the cheese, right? And then melt the cheese in right at the end. What kind of cheese do you put on this? I, I, I prefer and, and love pecorino okay. romano. Mm -hmm. I love sheep's milk cheese. I love, I mean, I love all cheeses, but for me, the acid and the flavor yeah. in sheep's milk and goat's milk cheeses are incredible. Especially the brightness that you are talking about. Yes, right? exactly. And, and you know, there's, of course, there's, there's the saltiness and also a, as a chef and procurement and, and running a kitchen and running a business, like when you look at, okay, what's the prices of everything? And I love Parmesan and I love, you know, all, so many different other wonderful firm cheeses that are great for that application. Uh, but, you know, to get a really quality product, you know, the, the price per pound is just astronomical comparatively when you look at, you know, Pecorino versus Parmigiano. And it started as that, right? And then I fell in love with sheep's milk cheeses and oh, yeah. the acid mm -hmm. and the, the brightness that they bring. Sure. So... We'll finish it with uh, Pecorino Romano, you know, and if it required, then it's, you know, taste, 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 salt, pepper, maybe the tiniest little bit of red pepper flake, not to make it spicy, but just to bring a level yeah. of astringency, right? Ah, we use okay. black pepper, raw garlic, and red pepper flake, you know, in terms of building flavors. And there are some dishes where you want those flavors more pronounced, but they might be in everything, just like with acid, we'll use 
drops of acid and some of those astringency uh, ingredients that we just mentioned, just to balance out and get the flavor, you know, so that it's rich, but it's also bright, and vibrant, and it does all the things that you want risotto to do, but it's not, doesn't fatigue your palate and doesn't weight it down. And it and was. It, yeah, the experience was outstanding. Was oh, really I'm glad you enjoyed it, Emmanuel. And it was very good with you know with the fish that you serve it. So very good. Okay, so let's switch to uh, rapid fire questions. You know, at the end, so you and I are going on a tasting tour in Providence here in Rhode Island. So where are the like what are like the five locations, except your location, <laughs> because I've been here already. That you are going to take me to. Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. So if I had to pick five, you know, I know, you know, when I'm, when I want to eat more contemporary kind of similar style of like what we're doing, I think of my friend Bo at New Rivers. And of course, Ben, that you just went to the other night at Oberlin and they're doing great stuff. I think about another friend of mine, two friends, Jesse and Rob that just opened Pizza Marvin and, and sort of like a, a fresh inventive kind of take and craft driven take on pizza. I think about my friends Maria and Marco and Joaquin over, you know, they, they which which restaurant? So they they had this restaurant called uh, El Rancho Grande for years, and they they closed the the restaurant down and opened up a a, a new restaurant on the east side of Providence, mm-hmm. and. It is, it's just so good. And they're doing wood-fired Mexican and it's just really wonderful. One more, I think. The, oh gosh, it's so, it's so hard. It's so hard. It's such an unfair question. I know. (laughs) Oh God, there's so many good noodle shops and there's so many good, you know, like it's just, it's like a playground here for your for your taste buds in Providence. It's wonderful. Oh, oh, and I didn't even mention. I'm sorry, I never mentioned. I, I was saying Marina, Maria, and and yeah. Marco and Joaquin. But Dolores is the name of that restaurant. Dolores. Yeah, I okay. should have said that. I okay. uh, I'm gonna make sure I give them their props. Uh, what is your favorite guilty pleasure food? Ooh, fried chicken. Fried chicken. Yeah. Okay, spicy one like like think, Nashville style or no? I mean, just. Yeah, no, I think just like classic, just okay. a classic fried chicken. Fried chicken is really is wonderful, but also I love I love burgers too. Okay, pizza. I mean, but now, pi- which topping? You know, I know for me, like if I like classic, just a classic cheese pie, like is 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 I would say is my favorite. So another unfair question: What are like the three cookbooks that inspire you the most oh. in your career? That's I know it's a, going to be another yeah, tough one good. for you. That is a really tough one. I have so I mean, we're you're sitting right behind my office, and and it's just walls and walls of cookbooks. And I think the three that stay on my desk the most, or within hands reach, there is a there's a cookbook that one of my mother's friends gave me when I was in high high school when I made the decision to go to Johnson Wales and it's this two women that wrote this cookbook and it became almost like a manual to me because it's very easy to read and the recipes actually work and uh, it was a good resource for me. However, I, I can't remember the name off the top of it, but that's on the top of my, on the top of my list. I'll get you the name and the, the first French laundry book sure. was very inspirational. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's, for me more for the passages and his anecdote and stories than the recipes. And I think that that's still something, you know, even though it's a little dated in terms of uh, things, I think I, I read that at the right time in my career. And then Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, The River Cottage. I think those are wonderful books. I think he, he comes from a place of naturalness and enjoyment and accessibility and craft, but not from a precious you know, there's a sense of reverence, but not a sense of, you know, he's a good writer and, and there's not a sense of when you're reading it, sometimes cookbooks can be like, and not intentionally from the author, but like, you're like, this is not, this sounds 
Like it's mm-hmm. going to be hard for people to create or this is vague or ambiguous or intentionally. It's not a great, you know, there's some that are inspirational and aspirational and there's some that are m- more manual driven. And I think I like when, a, when they, when they're written in a way where people can actually follow them and mm-hmm. there's little good s- stories and sure. vignettes and last question. So what is your biggest pet peeve in the kitchen? At first pass, I might say arrogance. Yeah, I think arrogance, but it's not arrogance. You know, I I think because that can come in a come from a place of confidence, and you know, it's a turn off. But I think indifference, indifference, or you know, there's somebody like the list is like somebody being messy, somebody being you know a little like a bull in a china shop, somebody being aggressive, or or just. You know, there's some people that have a little bit of a mean spiritedness to them, like, you know, and think that that's okay because they're good, you know, and that's, that's a real turnoff. You know, it, I try to create a high, it is high intensity, high energy atmosphere, but I want people to be coming from a place of love and service and passion and respect and respect. You know, I could see that it's so important. To I me. think that's, that would summarize, I mean, my experience because I was sitting at the bar. So in front of the kitchen, so I could see the dynamic. You don't have like a big team. It was, you know, a a small team, but I really, I have to say, enjoy the dynamic, like between like all the individuals. And I think like the, the respect, you know, between individuals. So I have to congratulate you to the way how you project yourself with the team in your restaurant. I appreciate that. Chef, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. I know I can get off on a winding road, but I appreciate the I appreciate the conversation and the chance to sit down and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on another mouthwatering episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. Our thanks to Chef Derek Wagner for sharing his passion, expertise, and inspiring stories with us today. From his humble beginnings to his dedication to local ingredients and community, Derek has shown us the power of a strong culinary vision. We hope you enjoyed learning about the behind the scene magic that gives into creating the unforgettable dishes of Nick's on Broadway. If you like this episode, please share it with a fellow food enthusiast and make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Remember to support your local farmers, experiment in your kitchen, and never, never stop exploring the delicious world of flavors. Until next time, where I take you back to Miami with an interview with Chef Jeff McInnes, I wish you happy cooking and bon appetit. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.